Hey, good morning. Glad you guys are joining us today for this Sunday service. You know, if you have your Bible, go ahead and meet me again in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 19 through 25. Today in this passage, uh, where we are in this letter is, uh, is an interesting point because it's actually an inflection point in the letter to the Hebrews. And what I mean by that is that this, this particular passage for us today is kind of a turning point. The author kind of makes a shift and a transition, uh, if you will, because in the first nine chapters of Hebrews, if you guys haven't noticed already, there's a lot of information, not a lot of knowledge, and, um, and for the right reason, the author of Hebrews is writing to a um, real people, a fellowship, um, Jews who have become Christians, and now because of their Christian faith, they, they have persecution in front of them and before them, and, and they're kind of in this hard spot. They're kind of in this place in their life, and like they feel like it's easier to just drift away and go back to their old way of life in Judaism and to traditions and rules and regulations, and they felt like there was more security in that. And so what the writer of Hebrews wanted to do uh, for this fellowship is remind them. He took nine chapters to remind them of who Jesus is and to say, hey, do not forget the object and the subject of your faith. Do not forget who Jesus is. And he's trying to tell them there's so much more that we, we can know and discover about Jesus. And he's saying it's beautiful, it's magnificent, and, and, and so he's saying, do not miss out on this. So that's what's happening in the first nine chapters. It's just a lot of um, explanation. Uh, scholars call it exposition. It's just a fancy word, but what we have in Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 is the inflection point in which the author of Hebrews is taking everything that we ought to know about Jesus, at least for, for the Hebrews at this point, and he's saying, now this is how you respond. And so scholars just say, you know, this is, the, this is the point in which the author is going from exposition to exhortation. Just, you know, this, this time of, um, where, where he's taking everything that they have to know and teaching them about how they ought to now live. What do they do with what they have just learned? What, what do they do with what they have just learned? heard. And so this is what he's trying to tell them. The, the um, fellowship in, that, that the author of Hebrews is writing to, right, they've got, this, um, uh, they've got this difficult circumstance in their life, and they wanted to run towards something that they felt was more secure. They, they were seeking some sort of rest and a Sabbath and they're, they're, they're trying to go towards something that they felt was more safe. And they, they started drifting away, thinking that, that all that they need and all that they're hoping for is outside of Jesus. But Hebrews is trying to remind us that everything that we need and hope for is not outside of Jesus, but it's actually in Jesus. And so he's saying, don't consider Jesus less. He's saying, consider Jesus more. He's saying, don't look away from Jesus. He's saying, fix your eyes on Jesus. Right? And so this is kind of uh, the hope of the author. And the first nine chapters is just a lot of, um, kind of kind of repetition. And he uses repetition as a teacher, a teaching tool, so that they don't forget who Jesus is. 
Some of the things that we learned in the last several weeks as we launched this, ser- this sermon series is we learned that Jesus is superior to the angels. He's greater than the angels. He's also greater than Moses who delivered God's people out of um, the hand of uh, Egypt and Pharaoh and slavery. But Jesus is the greater deliverer, right? He is the true Sabbath. He is the one that gives true rest for his people. And so the author of Hebrews is trying to get them to see and to consider and to, to look at Jesus and who he is. And then in the recent chapters, in recent weeks, we learned about Jesus, he, that he establishes this better covenant. And the way he establishes this better covenant, which we call the new covenant, is that this Jesus, who is superior to angels, greater than Moses, he is the true Sabbath, he became one of us. He actually drew near to us. He came down to us. He came down that mountain and he came to us and took on human form. And this high priest, which the author calls the great high priest, he says he is the great high priest because unlike other high priests who would use goats and animals and bulls as sacrifices, our great high priest, Jesus, offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He gave himself to us as a way we can fully and and once and for all draw near to him. So here's where we pick up, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. The first word in verse 19 says, therefore. So you got to know what happened and what he said before that. He's talking about who Jesus is and what he's done and the better covenant and better promises and, 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 and the high priest that we have and his atonement for our sins. And remember that, that he will be our God and we will be his people. He will forgive our sins once and for all and he will establish his law not on stone but on our hearts and, and on our minds. And he says, therefore, and he says, since we have confidence to enter. And I want to remind you today that you have every um, bit of confidence you need to enter into the most holy place where God dwells. He says we have confidence to enter. And and the thing is, we have to consider what is the confidence based on? On what basis do I have confidence to enter the most holy place? Remember last week we talked about the tabernacle and the tent of meeting where God would dwell in this place called the most holy place. And before that was just this, the, the first section called the holy place, and you would have a priest there, and there would be some sacrifice. But as you go from one section to the next section, there was a curtain. And that curtain, when you go through, it would only be the, the high priest once a year, the day of the atonement, that would come with the blood of the sacrifice as an atonement for the sins of Israel for that whole year. And they would do this every single year year. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is you, what we have to understand is that now because of Jesus, we have confidence to enter that most holy place. It's just a way of saying we have confidence to enter into the presence of God without curtains. And he's saying that the curtain has been torn because of the body of Jesus. He was torn on our behalf so that we can enter in. And it's through the the body of Jesus that we can actually enter in into the presence 
of God. We have confidence not on the basis of our own works or good works or our successes or our, our, our religious efforts or moral ethics. It's confidence in the finished work of Jesus. That his blood actually covers our sins. And he goes on, he says, this is, this is our confidence by the new and living way. By the new and living way that he opened for us. So he's saying, enter, the door is open. Enter because of the confidence we have in Jesus. It's through him. And he says, we have a great high priest over the house of God. His name is Jesus. And we can now enter in and come into the presence of God. What he's really saying, if I can kind of sum it up in one sentence, it's this. Jesus has given us direct access to the presence of God. No more sacrificing of animals. No more earning our way. No more climbing up a mountain. No more restrictions. No more rules and regulations. God has done the work on our behalf. And our confidence is in him and what he has done. And Jesus has given us direct access. There's no filters you have to go through. There's nothing you have to clean up in your life before you come to God. You you don't come to God because you've cleaned up some of the mess in your life. You don't come to God because you've, you've got rid of some addictions in your life. Jesus, come as you are. And in his love, he changes you. Right? He's, Jesus has given us direct access to God himself. And I don't know if that's like turning on the lights in your room, the lights in your heart. I, I don't know if that's amazing to you at all, but it should be. If, if you think about what that means and what that's like for God to give us access, full access, direct access to himself. I was thinking about this past week, um, you know, the kind of the... Kind of the way I was thinking about it is, you know, that time when you have to call the cable company or, or your bank and um, you ever call customer service and you're wanting to uh, talk to someone that can help you out in a certain situation. Maybe your cable's not working, your, your internet's not working. Maybe you're calling your bank because you got a, a charge that, you're, that, you're, that you shouldn't be charged for. And so you call that number, that 1-800 number, and you call customer service and they put you on hold for like two years. And then you finally get in touch with someone and you're like, hey, can you help me out with this? And what uh, you know, I don't know if you've experienced this recently, but you know, you ever get those moments. Sometimes they help you out right away, but there's moments when you're like, man, they're not, they're not wanting to do anything, and, and you're frustrated. And all they say after you being on hold for like two years is they, they say, "I just sorry, sir. There's nothing I can do." You ever get that? There's nothing I can do. And in your mind, you're thinking, that's not true. There is something you can do. There's got to be something you can do. It's not my fault, right? It's not my fault that the cable's not working, the internet's not working. It's not my fault that you guys charged me for something that's not, I didn't, you know, purchase. And so if you're like me, you, you take that next step, and, and what you do is you ask, and you say, can you transfer me? You ever done this? Can you transfer me to someone that can help me? Obviously, it's not you right? But can you, is there anyone, is there a supervisor? You ever asked this before? Is there a supervisor I can talk to? Is there a manager? And sometimes they do, and sometimes that actually helps. But 
you know what I've never done in my life? What I've never done is after talking to customer service, what I've never asked, asked for is I've never said, can you transfer me to the CEO? I've never done that. I don't know if you have. If you have, that's kind of weird but, and bold, but I don't know. I've never said, well, can you just transfer me to the president of the company? Can you just transfer me to the CEO? Let me just talk to him or her directly. Maybe they can help me. And the reason why I have never done that, the reason why most of you, right, have probably never done that, is because we know that the probability and the reality of that happening is slim to none. Like, like that, that customer service doesn't even know how to get you on that path, connecting you to the CEO. So we don't even ask, right? No one, no one does that because no one really can. And if you think about uh, the higher up you go and the CEO of this big, amazing company, I want you to think about, man, how limited that number of people who have direct access to him becomes, right? There's probably fewer and fewer people that have direct access to him the more superior that person is. Are you, are you tracking so far? Right? That number of people that can actually call him directly, and say, man, I have direct access to him or her, is gets smaller and smaller the more superior you become. And, and in fact, it's not even just that there's a small number, but it, it has its boundaries. We call it office hours, right? right? Maybe from like 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., I don't know, maybe like, hey, you guys, you guys can call me anytime. You guys have my email. You guys, are my, you guys know where my office is coming at any time. You guys are the group that have direct access to me. I want you to think about that. Man, what would that be like if you had direct access to certain people in your life, certain CEOs or celebrities? How awesome would that be? I want you to think about people in your life that you have given direct access to. Who are those in your life that they have direct access to you? You know, and I'm not just talking about who has your phone number, who has your email, right? But I'm talking about who in your life are you delighted to have them come into your office, your home, the places of, of friendship and communion at any time in your life. I want you to think about that. It's limited. And we would probably limit it just to close friends and family. But, if, but outside of that, it, there's got to be some boundaries. There's office hours and things like that. And I want you to think about how superior Jesus is as Hebrews is explaining it to us and yet what Hebrews is saying is that superior, he's superior to angels and Moses and he's just using references that they would understand. For us, it's like he's superior to Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, whatever you want to put there. He's superior. You could just fill in the blank. He is higher. He is greater. He's better. And it, it's, it's not even just something it could, or someone. It could be something. He's Jesus is better than that thing. And Hebrews is saying, you have direct access. And you know what the crazy thing about it is? Is that God, through Jesus, doesn't just give us direct access. He gives us unlimited access. You see, those are two different things. It's one thing to say, hey, here's my phone number, contact me. Here's my email. Here's my office. But it's another thing to say you have unlimited access. It, at any moment through the night, if you ever want to reach me, you can come. Or you can, you, can, you can call. You can come near. 
That's a whole different story. I think about in my life, who has that kind of access? Not just direct access, not just my phone number and email, but who has unlimited access to me at any moment, at any hour of the day? Who has that? And it really, it just becomes my family, right? It just becomes my, my family, like it would be my kids. And it's, it, that's a reality for my, my wife and I as my kids are still very young, right? And sometimes, maybe many times, they don't sleep all through the night. My kids are the only ones when, when if, if they're crying at 3 a.m., like I, I'm not just obligated, but I actually, you know, I, I, I want to help. I, I want to I uh, come to their room and figure out what's going on. And, you know, I'm, I'm groggy and, you know, I'm, I'm like half asleep, right? But, but I come in because they call me father. They call me dad. And they're my sons. They're the ones that have unlimited and direct access to me. But as a human being, you know, do I enjoy it all the time? Absolutely not, right? Absolutely not. It sucks when they're crying at 2 and 3 a.m. and then again at 5 a.m. And, and the thing about it is that, that as a parent, as a dad, you just have to make yourself available to them. And all, and all the parents that have young kids or, or had young kids at some point, right, they, you, you, you understand what that's like. And kids, they milk it. They, it's on their schedule to wake you up in the middle of the night. It's on their schedule to mess up our schedule. You know what I mean? And, and they just milk it and milk it. And, and, um, and I think about our God. He, he never gets tired of us. He doesn't get annoyed that we want to spend time with him. He doesn't draw away when we draw near. Our God actually delights in us. He gives us direct access to him. He gives us unlimited access to him. We, we, we can call him Abba, Father, because he calls us his beloved child. We, we are that group. It's not a something in the world, it's, 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 it's us, it's someone, it's, it's the children of God that have direct access and unlimited access to God. And so the writer of Hebrews, what, what he's saying is, he's saying three things here. He's saying because of that direct access, and we have unlimited access, and God delights in that, in us drawing near to him. He says three things. One is, he says, let us draw near right, with the true heart and full assurance of faith. And then he says, let us hold on, uh, the, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And the last thing is, he says, let us consider how to stir up one another toward love and good deeds, right? So we're going to look at these real quick. First one, he says, let us draw near. These are, this is the first response, right? This is the inflection point. This is what we ought to do and how we ought to live in light of what we have just learned. In light of what we've just heard and, and learned about Jesus and this access we have to God, the writer of Hebrews is saying this is not for us to just have head knowledge. This is for us to actually experience him. You get to encounter God. Here's how you do it. Draw near. If he has opened the door, if he has invited you in, if he has um, given you access, then he's saying draw near. And draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Don't, don't come to God wondering, am I good enough now? That, that's not our, the basis of our confidence. Don't draw near wondering, is God really there? 
Hebrews is saying, come with an assurance of faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. By sight we wander, but by faith we walk. If our, if our physical eyes are driving us, we're, gonna, we're bound to wander in this life like Israelites. But scripture calls us to walk by faith. And he says, walk towards the presence of God. Walk towards him. Draw near to him. Notice in verse 21, it says that Jesus is the great high priest over the what? Over the house of God. Over the house of God is our great high priest, Jesus. And then he says, draw near. What he's saying is, he's saying in drawing us near, where Jesus is the high priest over the house of God, he's inviting us to the house of God, symbolic of where his presence dwells. He's inviting us essentially to be at home with God. To be in his house where his presence dwells. He's inviting his children to be home. That's the picture here. That, that we, that it's not to go to, you know, to be in a church building or to um, have more spiritual activities going on and not to increase that, which is not a bad thing. But what he's saying is that the picture is that we ought to be at home with God. That's where our home is. That's where our eternal home will be. It's with God. So he's saying draw near. So I think about the picture of the A prodigal son story, the picture of the father who's looking out every single day. And he's not only wanting his son to come home, he's expecting his son to come home. He he is looking for his son to come home. And he wants his son to know that, son, no matter what you have done, not on the basis of your works, but on the basis of my grace, you are always welcome home. You are always welcome. In fact, you will never be home unless you're home. You will never be at rest until you're actually home. And, and, and that's the picture of Hebrews here saying, draw near to be at home with God. It's the picture of the prodigal son coming home and being at home with his father where he is unconditionally loved, right? And, and I think about other stories in the Bible like Luke chapter 19, a story of a, a man named Zacchaeus. The Bible says he was wealthy but empty. He was wealthy and he had all the riches. And I think that Zacchaeus probably had a big house, but he was never really home. And what I mean by that is he had all the stuff that, that you, can, you can have in the world. And that he had everything that he probably needed in terms of earthly treasures. But he was empty because he didn't have a relationship with God. And so the minute he heard that Jesus was in town, the minute that he heard about Jesus, he took the opportunity to draw near to him. And the Bible says that he was a short man. You know, God, God's kind of fair like that. You know, he was wealthy but short, you know, kind of evens out. <laughs> and, and because he was short, he couldn't see Jesus. And on top of that, there was a crowd. And so a crowd, you know, kind of assuming that most people were probably taller than he was, so he couldn't see, not because of his short stature, but because the crowd was there. And so what he did was, in his, in his passion and his desire to see Jesus and to be where Jesus is, he would climb up a tree and he would look down, he called Jesus, and Jesus looks back and he, he notices Zacchaeus. And that day changed Zacchaeus' life. And that day, Zacchaeus was actually home. 
He knew what it meant to be at home with God because he drew near to Jesus. The Gospels, the stories in the Bible, the central story of the Gospel, yes, it is about God drawing near to us. Yes, it is. But you cannot neglect and don't forget the stories in the Bible where people have responded to God drawing near by actually drawing near to him. There's countless stories of people who actually, sinners who actually, prostitutes who actually, people who are sick, lepers who are actually near to Jesus and their lives were never the same. Yes, Jesus came near to us, but that's not just information. It calls us to respond and to draw near to Him. The Gospels are stories of people who have encountered the living God in Jesus, His touch, His teaching, His compassion, His miracles, His comfort, His rest, because they drew near to Him. And I searched the Bible, and I have not found one person that drew near to Jesus that did not encounter him. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that God will never turn away those that turn to him. God never draws back on those that actually draw near. What good is it for you to know all this information about Jesus and yet never today actually draw near to him? See, what makes the difference is not your knowledge of him or about him. What makes the difference is you take the knowledge of what you know about him and you draw near to him. The Bible says let's draw near with the assurance of faith on the basis of his good works. Can I tell you, church, that we're either drawing near or we're, we're, or we're drawing back. There's things that cause us to drift back and draw back, and there's things that causes us to draw near. And which one are you today? Which one have you been this week? You know, when you, th- when you think about um, what we do throughout the week, and maybe you're the type that has a calendar and a planner and all these things, you know, we have meetings and appointments probably spread out throughout the week. And you probably, as you look at your calendar this week, you're probably looking at meetings you have and appointments you have. And you, and you look at those, and, and, and you probably can say that some of those are more important than others. There are some meetings and appointments that you're like, I, I, there's no way I can move that. That meeting has to happen. But there's other meetings and appointments you're like, I can reschedule that. What if I told you today that the most important meeting of your day is your meeting with God? So many times we take our meeting with God and we just reschedule, reschedule, reschedule. What Hebrews is saying is don't reschedule the most important meeting of your day. Put that in your calendar and draw near to Jesus. To draw near is simply to posture yourself, to posture, to to, to draw near, to posture yourself towards his presence. So draw near. Number two, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Hold fast the confession of our hope. He's saying you have hope. You've got this incredible hope. In Hebrews 6, 19, he actually says that we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. It's firm and secure, right? What, what hope does for you and for me 
is it allows us to stay the course. It allows us to be steadfast when the road underneath us is rocky. It allows us to be secure. It, it allows us to be, um, have security in times of uncertainty. That's what hope does. And when you look at people that have hope during challenging times, they look kind of weird. Because you're like, how are you not stressed? How do you sleep so well at night? How are you not anxious? And isn't it true that we wish we could be those kinds of people all the time? He's saying, you actually can. You have hope. And, and hope looks so weird to the world who don't have it, right? And, and we don't worry. We don't panic. We're not anxious because we actually have hope. And the author says, hold fast to that. What he's saying is, don't lose your grip on that hope. In other words, the hope doesn't change. But it's the grip that changes, Sometimes we just let loose and we forget we actually have hope. Sometimes we let loose or we, we loosen our grip because we actually want to hold on to something else. He's saying, no, hold fast to your hope. Do not lose your grip. Do not let loose. It says without wavering. The, the, the better translation is uh, hold to your hope unbendingly. Don't let it Don't let it. Uh, uh, Don't let it bend. Don't, don't let it change. Hold on to the hope that you have. You know, holding fast to this hope. Uh, that picture, that imagery reminds me of my two boys and how they hold fast to their toys and how they protect their toys. It's so funny. Now that we have two uh, who are, um, you know, we've doubled the number of kids, but the number of toys has not. And so now we have two kids fighting for the same amount of toys. And so they're always protecting their own toys. They're always protecting their own stuff. And little brother doesn't want big brother to take his toys. And so it's so funny how strong he gets in moments when he feels like big bro is going to take away his toy. He, he, he has a strong and firm grip and he pulls it close. Little two-year-old Joshua pulls it close and says, big bro, you're not taking this toy. This is mine. And I love that imagery of what Hebrews is calling us to do. To not let anything in the world take away the hope you have. In Christ Jesus. Hold firm to that hope. The hope is just to simply remember the gospel truths that we have. To remember, it's not to make up and to just be optimistic. That's not hope. It's to remember the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for all eternity that impacts how we live here now in the temporary. It's to hold on to that hope, right? And Hebrews is in need of this hope because they, it seems like a hopeless situation. They're, they're being, their faith is being, man, attacked from every angle. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, in your hardship, in your suffering, hold on to the hope. You know what I do sometimes when I start to lose my hope or when I start to forget um, in dark times or challenging times or uh, hardship, I start to forget God's promises and I forget God's word and I start to lose my grip on this hope and I start to grip something else. What I do is I try to remember what I believe. I'll remember myself. I re I'll try to re help myself remember all that Jesus is and who he is and, and what I am uh, in Christ. And one, one song that sometimes I'll sing to myself is just a portion of the song by Hillsong called The Creed. And basically this, this portion says, you know, I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. 
our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that he will rise, that we will rise again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. I believe in life eternal. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the saints communion and in your holy church. I believe in the resurrection when Jesus comes again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. Just those few short lines in that song encourages me to hold on to the hope that I have. And part of what we're doing now in preaching and in worship and when we gather together and hopefully sooner than later when we start to gather in person, all of that, right, all that we do, part of it is, is so that we can hold on to the hope, so that we can remember the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Last but not least, he says, let us consider how to stir up one another toward love and good works. Let us consider. So you got to think about it. Causes, it needs reflection. You got to think about people. Consider how to stir up one another toward love and good works. That word stir up is, you know, it's, I, I, I picture this like stirring soup, mixing it up, causing it to, to become something. But the word is actually stronger in the literal translation. Or the literal word, the original word is actually to provoke, to stimulate, right? We know what it's like to provoke someone to anger. But the writer of Hebrews is saying provoke someone towards love. It causes them to, to be stimulated and inspired and energized towards love and towards good works. It means this, if you're taking notes, write this down. It means that we need to have a community mindset, not a consumer mindset. And what I mean by community mindset over the consumer mindset is, is this. See, in the consumer mindset, we ask the question, what can this church do for me? What can beloved give me? What can beloved, uh, um, how can beloved help me? How can beloved encourage me? How can beloved serve me? But in the community mindset, we ask, what can I do for beloved? How can I love our church, how can I serve others, how can I encourage others, right, and it's in this community mindset that I think we do three things, one is we show up, second is we speak into, and last but not least, we seek out, right, we show up, the Bible says, let us consider how to stir up one another towards love and good deeds, and then it says, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. So it's just saying, look, if, you, if, if we're going to have a community mindset, right? if we're going to consider how to provoke one another towards love, you've got to stop um, being in the habit of not meeting together, of just skipping out and saying it's okay. Right? It's saying show up, right? just showing up. Just showing up, there is encouragement. God designed it that way. And you think about people that may be like really sick at the hospital and you come visit. It's not so much what you say in that visitation that encourages them. It's just the fact that you're beside them that encourages them. It's your presence that's encouraging. And, and so that's what he's just saying is that just by showing up, there's encouragement in the body of Christ. By showing up, it provides opportunities for you to pray for others and others to pray for you. It gives opportunity for you to ask how someone's doing and for someone to ask you how you're doing. It gives an opportunity for you to praise and to worship with others and for others to worship and praise with you. John Ortberg, he calls it the ministry of availability. Just being available to people, ministers to people, right? 
Did you know that um, in one year, do you guys know how many Sundays we have in one year? There's only 52 Sundays in a year. And 52 Sundays, let's say you commit to all 52 and you show up, right, like the Bible said. And, and, and these services, depending on who, who preaches, it, it could go shorter or longer. But let's just on average, it's like an hour and 15 minutes. 52 Sundays a year for about an hour and 15. Do you know how much time that would be that we spent together as a church in one year? I'm glad you asked. because I did the math for you, okay? In one year, if you go to all 52 Sunday services and you commit to an hour 15 for every single service, in one year, that's only about 72 hours a year. And let me put that in perspective. 72 hours in one year, okay? That 72 hours is just a three-day weekend with your family. That's it, a three-day weekend. That's all the time that we spend together in one year. And Hebrews is saying, don't be in the habit of skipping out. Show up. Number two, speak into, right? This is, this is for us to remember not to underestimate the power of our words. It calls us, Hebrews, to encourage one another. And one of the ways we do that is how we speak, how, what we say, right? Our words have the power of life and death, it says in Proverbs 18, 21. It can break people down. It could also build people up. We are called to speak into people with love, right? So it means that we, um, when we talk about people, we consider the words that we say. It doesn't mean we talk about Jesus less. In fact, we talk about Jesus more. Because as we talk about Jesus more, it's reminding one another of where the source of our love actually is. And, and as we are together, um, it's encouraging people with their words along their journey with Jesus, right? There's a quote that says that if you flatter people, they, might, they may not believe you. If you criticize people, they may not like you. If you curse people, they may not forgive you. But if you encourage people, they will never forget you. And it just speaks into the need of encouragement that we have, right? There isn't any relationship that isn't made better or worse by how we choose our words. You know, our words can be the messengers of God's love. It can be the very instrument God uses to speak encouragement, to give encouragement to someone at just the right time. You've probably experienced where you, you received a message or an email or, or a text at just the right time. Or you heard a sermon and you're like, man, that came at just the right time. That was the power of speaking and encouraging through words. And God is saying, you can do that. Speak into people with love. Last but not least, as I close, it's to seek out. And what I mean by seeking out is seek out opportunities to bless people. If we're going to consider how to stir one another towards love and good deeds, we've got to model what it's like to love and to do good works. Seek out opportunities to bless people. What that means is just to notice people and where they're at. You know, that's what God does with us. God notices where you are, and he helps us along the way. And I want you to think about, is there anyone around you that could use your prayers this week? Is there anyone around you that can use an encouraging word this week? Is there anyone around you that, that you notice, man, they have, a, they have a need? And maybe you can't fill the whole thing, but you can fill some of it. And seek out and notice. The, the way we consider how to stir our church up towards love and good works is we show up and we speak into people with love. And we seek out opportunities to bless.
And the Bible says, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All the more as you see the day drawing near. So there is an increase as we see the day drawing near. And scholars have debated and they debate on what that day actually is referring to. But the purpose is not to produce panic. The purpose is to provide perspective. Perspective on what? perspective that our time on earth is not forever that our time does expire this is calling us when it's saying all the more as you see the day approaching it's saying look there is a time when time will expire for us there is a time where that that is not unlimited but it's limited so we have to make the best use of our time right and so in response to who jesus is and all that he is and the direct access and unlimited access that he has given to us, the difference maker is to draw near. It's to hold on to the hope we have. And then in community, to stir one another up towards love and good works.